0: Well, yes, I'm no stranger to you, but as Forrest said last night, he didn't get in an introduction, I didn't get an introduction. And Jesus said that a prophet is without honor in his own country. <laughs> John 4, and here we have prophecy. So I think there might have been a providential uh, something behind why I'm speaking on this subject tonight. There is a picture of a depiction of Jeremiah, And Jeremiah is uh, wearing that uh, device around his neck in Jeremiah chapter 28. And that is a yoke. And that was to symbolize that uh, the people would have to endure Babylonian uh, captivity and some rule and that they would have to undergo that for a time, and they would just have to deal with it, but that they would be taken care of. Now, even though that message was a message that, in the end, was supposed to bring about peace, it actually ended up uh, having some other people go against that prophecy. We won't go all into it tonight, but I bring this up uh, tonight with Jeremiah because you look at this situation, you look at how... There were other prophets that were around at the time who were making the statements, thus saith the Lord, thus says the Lord. And you'll read that in Jeremiah chapter 28. We might even have a sermon on it in a few weeks when I preach, Uh, filling in for Bob. But you look at this uh, example here in Jeremiah chapter 28, and there were those that were around that were saying things that people wanted to hear. And then there was the truth. And I think it's an important point to remember when we think about prophecy. Of course, we oftentimes when we think about prophecy, what we're talking about is a foretelling of future events, which is great for what we're going to be studying tonight because that is an element of prophecy which gives us more hope in the Scripture. But then you think about uh, the proclamations of things that People had to say, like Jeremiah, those things that they had to proclaim, which were not easy to proclaim. But yet, there were false prophets out there, and you knew that they were false prophets. They would say what people wanted to say. But the real prophets, when when you see what they say, they say it as delivered from God. And so, really, you have an extension of God's word, the importance of God's word, when we think about prophets, and it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter one, and I was having a discussion with somebody one time, and then we're talking about how they were talking to somebody at their school about uh, believing in the Bible, and, and he said, "Well, you really believe that uh, Jonah was swallowed by a whale?" I believe that is was what the person said, and the and the person said, "Well, yeah, I believe that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish, but I also believe that." that God spoke into existence the world. So I believe in Genesis 1-3, God said, let there be light. There are the words of God. And so the words of God carry through the scripture. And that's an extension of what we have in prophecy. So first of all tonight, how does the Bible define a prophet? A prophet is a mouthpiece for God. Prophet reveals the oracles of God. You go back to Exodus chapter four, verse 16, and then in Exodus chapter seven, verse one, you have Aaron there. And this is where we first see this as uh, a mouthpiece or a spokesperson. Ex- Exodus 4:16, "So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. Well, here is God talking to Moses about Aaron. Remember Moses and his hang-ups. Even though Moses, Zach chapter 7 tells us he was trained in the ways of the Egyptians, he had a fear in going to the Egyptians and going to Pharaoh. And he asked those questions, who am I? Who shall I say that you are? Remember how God responds to him. I am who I am. So uh, here is Aaron now selected by God because Moses won't do what God asks. But notice this. You shall be to him as God. So God is telling him that what I reveal to you, you will say to him and he will be the mouth. This is... God working with someone's imperfections. This is not the way it would always be, but here is God assisting. Aaron, it says in verse uh, 1 of chapter 7, shall be your prophet. He was to be Moses' spokesman. And so, here you, beginning here in chapter 4 of Exodus, you have the phrase, Thus says the Lord. And that is a phrase that occurs 417 times in the Old Testament. And this is the expression of a prophet. Uh, Another thing to note about a prophet is that a prophet must be 100% accurate in all his prophecies. There is no room for error. And if one makes an error, then that person is not a prophet. And we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 21, where it is revealed. The hearts of people, internally, the questions are being asked. Because it says, and if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? So here is this internal dialogue. And God is saying, if you're going to say that in your head, how do we know? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. And so when we consider biblical prophecy, we must consider that 100% of biblical prophecy If it is from God, if it is true, if it is not false prophecy, then it has to be accurate. And God is telling us it has to be accurate. There's no room for any error. Now, if we think about that and we think about modern day prophecy and how modern day prophecy you will hear Someone on TV, someone who makes a prediction, perhaps makes a prediction that when the Lord will return, or makes a prediction that someone will be uh, president, or when a war will begin. Well, if that person gets that wrong, then that prophecy eliminates them from being a prophet. They are not a true prophet. Here we see prophecy, and this is Thayer's definition, as discourse emanating from divine inspiration and declaring the purposes of God, whether by reproving and admonishing the wicked, or comforting the afflicted, or revealing things hidden, especially by foretelling future events. So while future prophecies are a part of Bible prophecy, they are not the only part. There are also prophecies which were contemporary when they were spoken, or revelation regarding the past. But the source of every biblical prophecy is from God. And as others have pointed out in the passage in Peter, uh, over, the fir- uh, over the last few nights, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, that no prophecy is by uh, private interpretation. That is, that it is not uh, Jeremiah who is giving you a prophecy that came from himself, that emanated out of his own uh, uh, knowledge, but it came from God. So the types of prophecies, there are prophecies that are in the past. Notice this in Exodus chapter 17, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Here is God telling Moses to put this in your diary. And when you look at the Jewish tradition of how they arranged the books of the Bible, the Jews would have broken down uh, the law, they would have the prophets, they would have the books of history. Um, And so they would have these uh, in different groupings. And you'll notice that uh, we won't get into all of it, but when Jesus talks about these, he'll talk about the law. And he'll talk about that. And when the uh, Jews talked about the law, they talked about what they were talking about was the entirety of the Pentateuch. And so uh, scholars point to the fact that because uh, that is called the law, all of it, and Moses is referred to as being the author of the law, that there's a very strong possibility that Moses did, in fact, write the Pentateuch, which would have been that history that was revealed to him. And, of course, here he is writing this memorial in the book. Also, there were prophecies that were contemporary in nature. And here you have Samuel. Samuel is a prophet who was involved in the process of David being anointed king, but the Lord named David in that moment. And this is in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 23, Second Samuel two, verses one through four, and so here you have a uh, relevant, uh, yeah, relevant, revelatory, revelatory prophecy. I had it right, um, but here is revelation, and Samuel is giving that information that David was to be anointed king right at the time that it was to happen, and you have this happen. Um, also, one an, another uh, example of that would be Nathan. Nathan was revealing to David uh, with the uh, scenario that he proposed to David, where he showed uh, that, that David was, in fact, uh, when he says that you are the man to David, uh, what he's telling him there is that he is the one that's guilty, of course, uh, in, in the murder, and then uh, of course, of uh, being with Bathsheba. So you have that revelation that's in the moment, and that is a type of prophecy. And uh, one of the books that I go to uh, that I've found that are good are by uh, Jack Lewis, and he has some thin books about the prophets. You can get big ones, of course, but... Um, it's a lot written. I like uh, some of what Homer Haley writes too. They're like verse by verse, but in the Jack Lewis books, he has them kind of boiled down to an overview. So you can get some insight in there, and it's good uh, preparatory uh, reading if you're going to go into the prophets and study it further. But what Jack Lewis does is he points to how, after Samuel, and what we're going to see in just a few minutes, how after the division of the kingdoms, you have a change in prophecy, and the way that uh, you have prophecy, prop, prophets entering the scene who would prophesy, and how we're known—they're known by the books that they wrote—and you have the major prophets and the minor prophets, and that division is not because the minor prophets are lesser in importance, it's only because they had less to write. So the major ones would be Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel. Now there is, of course, future prophecy, which we're going to look at a lot tonight, and that includes conditional prophecy. For example, Nineveh's reprieve in Jonah, the book of Jonah, and Jonah uh, prophesied from about 790 to 740 B.C. Then you have the destruction that's recorded in Nahum. That's separated by about 150 years. So the book of Nahum talks uh, about the judgment that's going to come upon Nineveh. And But before that, remember Jonah. And remember how reluctant Jonah was in going to Nineveh. Remember him trying to escape God, remember him uh, boarding a boat and trying to get away there. So the important dates in Old Testament prophetic history are as follows. First of all, there was a division of the kingdoms which occurred about 930 BC, and the northern kingdom, which is often called Israel or Samaria, was divided from the southern kingdom, which is Uh, referred to in scripture as Judah or Jerusalem so when you're reading prophecy you'll see these interchangeable terms here that are used to define the area where the uh, captivities will happen where these places will be overtaken where God's people are so if you see the northern if you see Israel if you see Samaria they're all the same thing and if you see the southern if you see Judah if you see Jerusalem they're the same thing. Assyria, under Sargon II, and then later Sennacherib, captures Israel. Sargon II started it, Sennacherib is the one who uh, finishes it. There it's 722 B.C. Now, sometimes when you read these in your, uh, uh, what are they called, Um, commentaries, when you read commentaries, you might see 721 B.C., not really much of a difference there, sometimes 597 B.C. or 596 B.C. Um, there some commentaries will have a, a year difference or something like that. Then there's Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar II, the, the Nebuchadnezzar that we read about uh, in the Bible. He captures Judah in 597 B.C., 11 years later, in 586 B.C., Babylon also under Nebuchadnezzar II, destroys Judah, including the temple that is there. And then Babylon falls to Medo-Persia under Cyrus, and that's in 539 B.C. And then right after that, the Jewish return from Babylonian exile begins in 538 B.C. One of the things to remember about these, and I broke this down tonight in looking at these mighty nations, you look at these uh, nations of vast resources, of wealth, of armies, of uh, just longevity, of world stature, and you think about uh, the resources that they had and how, if you were in that time, you would have thought, well, how is anyone going to come against, up against this country? Who's going to defeat this country? Who's going to defeat this nation? Who, who is uh, going to deal with this king? And, of course, when you start looking at Assyria, you'll uh, realize that there were some really bad folks that were out there, not only the people that were the soldiers but also the kings that were around at the time. But then you remember what Daniel said. Uh, said here in Daniel 4.17, This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it the lowest of men. And so when we look back on, you know, in civilization like Rome, and we look at some of the Caesars that were around at the time, you look at... Uh, some of these people who are just known are infamous for their wickedness, like Caligula or uh, Nero or Domitian, or these men then then you realize in this statement in this prophetic message, remember Daniel he was speaking six hundred years before Jesus is saying that even over the lowest ones, God is dealing with it, those affairs and so when we start looking at these prophecies, you think about uh, the politics of today globally, and you think about what you hear about globally, you think about um, economic structure, financial system, you think about what's said uh, about our country and how uh, some people are forecasting that, uh, you know, there there might be difficulties ahead for our country. And then you think that uh, what people are saying, they're forecasting, well, China now, is ascending, and these things are happening, and you think about the territory of these places, you think about how, how vast they are, you think about militaries such as ours, and, and then you think about how these people would have been seeing these events. And so here is a map of Assyria, and here are the Assyrian conquests, and you notice uh, launching out from Nineveh here, the arrows are pointing to where Assyria would go and uh, you have them going and the dates are listed there. Uh, down at the bottom uh, of the right-hand side, the, um, the right bottom corner, you'll notice that there's Babylon and then out to the right of that you have Media. Well, those are the other empires which were not as strong as Assyria at the time. So you have Medes, the Medes and the Persians. There would be an alliance there, which is actually prophesied about, about the, that we'll see. But then you have Assyria that is launching out, and then you have some of the dates of when they are. Notice there the Samaria date, 722. If you look down at Samaria, it goes across here, and then uh, some of the other places. Now, I didn't get into all the prophets and what they, they do break down, But uh, one of the places that I like to start is in Amos because Amos goes into uh, some of the territories that are covered by the rest. Obadiah is thought to uh, perhaps be the earliest of prophets there uh, of of the minor and major prophets that are combined. But then you have uh, some of these areas. You'll have Edom. You'll have Moab. You'll have places that were pagan and were warlike people but then sentences against them, and Amos compiles a lot of them. And you think about um, Amos, I mean, there's just not really a lot that's known about his life. We know that uh, he was a sheepherder from Tekoa, um, and so you you know some scant details about him, but you know that God put on this person who... Probably wasn't well esteemed by many people. I mean, he wasn't. People weren't afraid of him like they were the leaders of these nations around him. But then he was given this big job to do. But here are the conquests, and now uh, another map of that, and you can see uh, again to the far right-hand side, um, Media and Persia, which would unite. But then there is there are the Assyrian and Babylonian empires, uh, right about the middle there, you see Nineveh, you see a place that's called Ashur, and then uh, if you go a little southeast of that, then you'll see Babylon, and uh, then lower than that, you have the desert. Well, the first place I want us to look at is Assyria, and that name Ashur is uh, the, where we get that name Assyria from. The capital city was Nineveh, and the Assyrian kings were known for their cruelty and wickedness. And when you start reading about these kings, um, I've said it before that, you know, you think about the modern day um, radical um, religious uh, people around the world, the, the radical Islamists, and Uh, you see this cruelty that they inflict well you would put Assyria in that same uh, category and they like to humiliate so when they would come through a nation they might put uh, the whoever the ruler was of that nation they'd hook him through the nose and drag him uh, proceeding through the city like livestock so very wicked people and so uh, when you consider Uh, Jonah having to deal with Nineveh, you can certainly see why he wouldn't want to deal with these people. And uh, but you also consider that the love of God is uh, great, and even in this time, you, you think about the way that people perceive God in the Old Testament. I think of the God of the Old Testament. As this God of wrath, this God of punishment, this God of judgment. But then, when Jesus is born in the New Testament, then all of a sudden you have grace. Well, the grace exists in the Old Testament, too. And if you read the prophets and you read about all of these nations, not only were God's people, not only were Judah and Israel being told that they had to repent, but The other nations surrounding them, the pagan nations, uh, God reached out to. And so one of the examples of that is Jonah and Nineveh, and God thought it necessary to go to them. And he was right. They listened uh, the first time. So here's that sermon, and a very short sermon, but very effective, yet 40 days. And Nineveh shall be overthrown, Jonah 3, 4. Notice that that is what is called a conditional prophecy as well. Um, you know, one might say, well, Nineveh wouldn't, wasn't overthrown. So why is that prophecy uh, not a false prophecy? Well, because the message that was going to them was that they had to repent. And so when they repented, then God relented. And then of course Nahum he prophesied about Assyria's collapse in 612 BC and again you put yourself in the place of these people at the time this was approximately 2,000 years after it was founded so uh, that would seem very strange for you to hear okay the civilization that's been around for 2,000 years since the 26th century B.C., and now this place is going to fall. Well, before that, Assyria would overtake the northern kingdom. And so you have a number of prophets who uh, speak about Assyria, speak about Israel. Jonah, of course, also Hosea, who we're going to look at, Isaiah and Nahum. Should be a U there. N A H U M. They all prophesied regarding Assyria. Now, Hosea, he prophesies to the northern kingdom of Israel. And his message to them is that Israel's spiritual adultery to Baal worship is going to lead to her destruction. And you have in chapters 10, verses 1 through 8 of Hosea the description of how this is going to be carried out. That livestock, idols, altars, and even the king would be carried away from the northern kingdom. Well, here you have Hosea, his prophetic career, 750 to 17 B, 715 B.C. And just about the middle of that prophetic career, this begins. In 735 B.C., when Tiglath-Pileser III apparently a very popular baby name at the time, Tiglath-Pileser, of Assyria, he took Gilead and carried off the Israelites from the tribe of Naphtali. And so this prophecy held true. King Hoshea of the northern kingdom, not to be confused with Hosea, he was arrested by Shalmaneser V, and the city of Samaria was besieged three years until its capitulation. Sargon II, who we mentioned earlier, he claimed to have carried off 27,290 people in 721 BC. And according to these prophecies, Second Kings chapter 17 verse 24, foreigners were settled in Samaria in their place. And so here is that influx of foreigners. And that was all prophesied about. Well, now we look at Isaiah. And among Isaiah's many prophecies is one regarding King Sennacherib of Assyria. Here he is depicted on his throne. At the beginning of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 7, Isaiah describes a situation that actually occurred. And this is from uh, Wayne Jackson, when the Assyrians came into Judah during the time of Sennacherib, 2 Kings 18.13 and Isaiah chapter thirty six one and following, and again when the Babylonians invaded the land, and here it is, your country is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, strangers devour your land and your presence, and it is desolate, is overthrown by strangers. So, think about that, and think about what we're going to see regarding Assyria, because Assyria was making quite a bit of ground when you get into 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 13 and see what was going on. Uh, and in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, which was 701 B.C., Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So here is this rampage by Assyria, and he's just marching through and he's taking whatever he wants. But... Not Jerusalem. Well, here's Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, distraught about it, he tears his garments, he weeps, and not being able to contain Sennacherib, he prays to God fervently about it in 2 Kings chapter 19. How does God deal with that? He responds to Hezekiah's prayer. And In 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 6 through 7, it says, And Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, which the servants of the king of Assyria has blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor, and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. And so God is saying here, he's going to work it out. Well, uh, Isaiah prophesied that Sennacherib would not even shoot an arrow into Jerusalem. He's never going to touch that city. And sorry, this is the first time I've done this here, but I noticed it's very small. But you can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 32 through 34. Now, what happens is in the middle of the night, an angel of the Lord goes out, kills 185,000 of Sennacherib's camp. Uh, and sure enough, just as was prophesied, Sennacherib returns home to Nineveh, and he ends up being murdered by his own sons. Second Kings 19 verses 36 through37. And he does have a son, who reigns in his place. That son is Esarhaddon. And he's mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 37. And so, through Isaiah, after the prayer of Hezekiah, uh, Jerusalem remains unharmed. Notice that. Uh, here is God answering a prayer. And... We noted, uh, I think it was last night. I mean, that prayer that prayer works. Of course, there were the prophets, and the prophets were the spokesman for God. But God saw uh, in it in Hezekiah's prayer to reach Hezekiah with Isaiah, so that he would know that Jerusalem would be unharmed. Now, before he died, Sennacherib boastfully recorded his conquest of God's people on an artifact known as Sennacherib's prison. Guess which part he left out? The 185,000 people dying by an angel of the Lord. Um, that's the part that he left out. You can see this, um, Sennacherib's prison. It's at the... Uh, I think this one's in Chicago right now but uh, it recounts can- the campaign against Judah it does have an alternate telling of the events in 2nd Kings 18 verse 19 uh, in the Bible Sennacherib departed unsuccessful but on the prism Hezekiah was left in subjection like a bird in a cage so it only tells half the story right Adolf Hitler uh, is quoted as saying that history is written by the winners. Well, unfortunately, Sennacherib, he thought he was a winner for a little while, but he ended up losing. Before he died, he wrote this prism. But his son, Esarhaddon, he also left behind an artifact. And this inscription here it's from that, the Annals of Esarhaddon, from 680 B.C. And he says here, In the month of Nisan I made my joyful entrance into the royal palace, the awesome place wherein abides the fate of kings. A firm determination fell upon my brothers. They forsook the gods. Notice he, that he says they forsook the gods. He's not appealing to the biblical God here. He's just writing down history as he sees it, But he does point out that they returned to their deeds of violence, plotting evil. They revolted. To gain the kingship, they slew Sennacherib, their father. Now back to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 7, where this prophecy is about everything that's being wiped out. Jack Lewis brings up a point about that. He says that the final destruction of Assyria was so complete that when Xenophon... And his 10,000 Greeks passed by the site some 200 years later. They gave no indication of knowing that the capital had existed. And then we'll sometime look at Nahum chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 to read more about that. But that ultimate destruction, you think about a place like Nineveh, and at that time, you just wouldn't really think about that. So Assyria was one of those great countries. Next, we're going to turn to Babylon. And Babylon was an empire for over 1,200 years. Its remains today are about 53 miles south of modern-day Baghdad. Several prophets proclaimed a message to Babylon. And Daniel, Daniel's entire prophetic career was spent under Babylonian captivity from 605 to 536 BC. Nebuchadnezzar II was Babylon's greatest king. Here are some of the prophecies that are fulfilled regarding Babylon. uh, Jeremiah speaks on these. Babylon will rule over Judah for 70 years. Jeremiah chapter 25, 11, And this whole land shall be a desolation and and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon, 70 years. Then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. Well, in 609 B.C., Babylon sees Assyria also taking over Israel in the process. 539 B.C., As we'll see with the Medes and the Persians, here comes Cyrus, and Babylon was conquered. And so there is that 70 years. Here's another interesting fact about that 70 years. There's also the temple that's destroyed in 586. That's restored 70 years later with the help of Cyrus in 516 B.C. Also, another prophecy that you have was by Isaiah in Isaiah 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings to open him before the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. Now, what about these gates? Well, Babylon had these, an amazing defense system. It included moats, walls that were more than 70 feet thick and 300 feet high. 250 watchtowers. Cyrus was able to enter the city and conquer it later. And they did this. Part of what they did was they diverted the flow of the Euphrates River into a large lake basin, uh, got rid of the moats and those things. You have the permanent destruction of Babylon foretold. Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you think that those terms, if you were hearing the prophecy from Isaiah, do you think that those terms would startle you? They would be staggering if you knew your Old Testament history, if you knew what had happened in Genesis, what had happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Also, Isaiah fourteen twenty three: I will also make it a possession for the porcupine. In marshes of muddy water, I will sweep it with the broom of destruction says the Lord of hosts. Uh, This was no small claim. Babylon had been defeated by Assyria, but had risen again. And so now it was on the up. And while you had Assyria at one time winning in battle, Babylon was coming back. So all of this did come to pass. And we'll look at this more, but archaeologists have recorded that in the 5th century AD, according to Cyril of Alexandria, due to the bursting of canal banks, Babylon became a swamp, and a relatively modern air view of Babylonia, once the world's greatest city, shows only a mound of dirt and broken down walls, and that quote is from an Apologetics Press article listed there. Well, about the same time Babylon was destroying Judah in 586 BC, another prophecy was unfolding. And Ezekiel prophesied that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, would destroy the city, that many nations would come up against Tyre. These prophecies regarding Tyre, the city would be leveled and scraped clean like a bare rock, and its stones, timbers, and soil would be cast into the sea. The surrounding area would become a place for the spreading of fishermen's nets, and Last of all, the city would never be rebuilt to its former glory, and that's from uh, our course curriculum. So all of these things were about uh, what was going to happen with Tyre. Now, the way that these things unfolded is pretty interesting, because there were many nations that came up against Tyre. J.E. Smith, in his book on the major prophets, points out that the Babylonians, Alexander Antigonus, the Arabs, and the Crusaders all inflicted their blows against this place. And whenever Tyre would try to come back, uh, you would have archaeologists come through there and say there would only be a remnant of people left, just a small amount. And uh, in the 13th century, there were Muslim invasions and things like this when they were trying to form again. Also, there was a mainland land city. Now, when Nebuchadnezzar came through there, he invaded it for about 13 years, from 586 to 573 B.C. And of course, you can see even Tyre, even though Tyre uh, was not uh, as strong as some of these other nations, it was pretty strong to endure 13 years of attack by Babylon. But uh, Nebuchadnezzar got through there and only uh, attacked, uh, was able to attack a portion of it, the mainland, because off the mainland was an island. And the inhabitants of Tyre, they had fled to this island. Well, a few hundred years later, here comes Alexander the Great. And he finally conquers this remaining island in 332 B.C. And he does this by what's said with those materials that were there from the destruction. He throws those, has, orders his men to throw those materials into the sea and make a, a makeshift bridge so that he can get there, they can go across, and that they can get the rest of the inhabitants who had fled. And so you notice that this prophecy, you know, if you had been living at the time, you might think, well, this prophecy wasn't fulfilled uh, because these people got away. But yet, a couple hundred years later, just let God's word work out. Just let it unfurl, and here here it is. And um, trying to find some information about was going on at the time pulpit commentary said that uh, between the 17th and 18th centuries that travelers concurred that the surrounding area was a place for fishermen but no longer any type of commerce and so that city uh, this this portion of Tyre it's never been rebuilt even to this day so now on to the Medo-Persians and the destruction of Babylon Babylon was in its golden age from 740 to 680 B.C. It was considered to have the Midas touch, that anything that Babylon was associated with it couldn't go wrong, and it seemed unconquerable. And as we said before, there were these massive high walls. I think one of the numbers was 13 miles. This says 14 miles. All all four sides of the city had these enormous walls, 300 feet high, 75 feet thick. You have the Euphrates River that's surrounding the city, uh, and this uh, moat here that was 65 to 250 feet across. Well, the prophecies against it. We know that Cyrus came in, diverted the water flow, did that. But Jeremiah prophesied here. He says, I will raise and cause to come up against Babylon an assembly of great nations from the northern country. And so, God, with his foreknowledge, he was working out something else. And so, here is depicted Cyrus, or Cyrus the Great, Cyrus II. And Cyrus uh, here is prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure? Saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Well, this is 150 years before Cyrus began his reign. Now, Cyrus would go on to authorize rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. You can read about that at the beginning of Ezra there, also in Isaiah. And in 539, as we pointed out, Babylon did fall to the Medes and the Persians. It's interesting. I've seen in a few places where it is Jewish tradition that reports that Josephus, remember Josephus, he was a scholar that was uh, a Jewish scholar but Roman uh, paid. So he was writing um, about the history that was there and employed by the Romans. And he records that history showed that this great Persian king, he was shown these prophecies after he conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. Imagine that. Imagine that, uh, you know, you, were, you lived at a time and uh, 150, 150 years later, and uh, uh, somebody showed you and they, they had a, a photograph of you in a newspaper and a story about you, how that would make you feel. uh, I mean, I don't think he probably got a lot of sleep thinking about that, although he did do a lot of good. Uh, Also, uh, here is a continuation of what's going on. Xerxes, he destroyed the city in 478, and then it was finally abandoned uh, in the 4th century B.C. Homer Haley points out that at the time of Strabo, Babylon was a perfect desert in 60 B.C. Now, that's a prophecy by Isaiah hundreds of years earlier, 600-some years earlier from that. So now there is a transitional period between those prophets, and you notice that um, we're building the case here. You have the prophecies. You have some of them happening within the general time frame. You know, the prophets are making a a prophecy, and perhaps it's 25, 30 Maybe even a few years later, uh, 50 years later, something like that. Then you get into the hundreds, whatnot. Well, there's a transitional period with these prophets. And Daniel, he revealed Nebuchadnezzar's dream to him, 600 area BC, that Babylon, and when he revealed it, Babylon was the head of gold. Another kingdom he names was Medo-Persia, one of brass, which was Greece, and the fourth was iron and clay, and that was Rome. But then he notes that there's a kingdom that would la- outlast all the other kingdoms, which would be set up by God in heaven, and that's the church. And that is the kingdom that will never be destroyed. And when Peter makes the good confession in um, Matthew chapter 16, 16 through 20, uh, that's the kingdom that... Uh, Jesus says the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Well, there was a period, Zechariah called, a period of time when the prophets would depart from the land. And there's a period between the Testaments. This is sometimes called the intertestamental period, an interbiblical period. But there's a period of about 400 years. And so at this time, the world is awaiting two prophets. One, John the Baptist who is prophesied about in Isaiah 40, verse 3, and Malachi 3, 1. And then he's named a prophet in Luke chapter 1, verse 76. And, of course, Jesus Christ. And as has been noted this week, there's over 300 Old Testament prophecies regarding the coming Savior. There is a change of emphasis. The Hebrew writer points out, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, for whom also he made the world. Jesus also said about John the Baptist, the law and the prophets were until John, since that time the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it, noting the change. John's prophetic action was to emphasize Jesus Christ and to make preparation for him. And so the prophetic emphasis of the entire New Testament is upon the Lord and his kingdom. Well, there are so many messianic prophecies and uh, Holman's has a chart which I could not reproduce onto a slide because it's so long, so I took the liberty to break down some of this chart and show you just going through the scriptures starting in Genesis about the messianic prophecies. Here is the seed of the woman in Genesis 3:15. Later, Galatians 4.4, Hebrews 2.14. Also, uh, that uh, he was going to be born through Noah's sons, Genesis 9.27, Luke 6.36. The seed of Abraham, of course, that promise, Genesis 12.3. And those are the New Testament corresponding passages. I won't read them all, but just look at these passages in Genesis and then look at the New Testament. The seed of Isaac, uh, him being a blessing. To all the nations. Now, you look at the prophecies and you go back to Genesis, I mean, this is way before the prophetic age, right? Uh, So, this is not that uh, period of what uh, the Old Testament called the prophets. He'd be a blessing to the Gentiles, he'd be of the tribe of Judah, that no bone would be broken of him. Star out of Jacob, as a prophet, cursed on the tree. Those are all from the Pentateuch. Those are all just from what Moses wrote. Then you have the throne of David established forever, a promised Redeemer, declared to be the Son of God. His resurrection, his hands and feet pierced, mocked and insulted. Soldiers cast lots for his garments, uh, as a uh, few have brought up with Psalm chapter 22. Now you notice that. Psalm chapter 22. And you, and you look at these Psalms. These were a thousand years before Jesus was born. And you look at how exact these statements were about the Messiah. Uh, that he'd be accused by false witnesses. That his friends would stand afar off. That he'd be betrayed by a friend. His resurrection and this is just chronologically, so there are more about his resurrection and about his ascension, but this is in the Psalms, that he'd be given gall, uh, wine mixture, and vinegar on the cross. Uh, also, that he'd be born of a virgin. Uh, that is not a normal thing to have happened, obviously. The chief cornerstone that would be rejected by the builders uh, also uh Psalm 118 and then Isaiah chapter 52, that he would be silent when he was accused, that he'd be crucified with transgressors. And you think about some of these, I mean, to be crucified with his transgressors, I mean, when you look at all these prophecies, I mean, you know, you might meet someone who doesn't look at these kind of things, and they'll say, well, you know, it would have been easy for them to act all of this out if they knew that it was coming. But, I mean, Jesus couldn't select who was crucified on the cross beside him. I mean, that was up to the authorities who he remained silent in front of. So uh, there's just some things that he could not have accomplished on his own. Also, his triumphal entry on a donkey. Here we have uh, passages in Zacharias sold for 30 pieces of silver, money buying the potter's field the piercing of his body, and then, of course, what we read about John the Baptist. So when we, th- we think about these prophecies, I mean, you're going back basically to the beginning of recorded history and revealing details about this Messiah. And as many people will point out to you, I mean, the thread, the common thread of the Bible is Jesus Christ. He's there from the beginning all the way to the end. And he's there before the beginning, really, until after the end. If we're talking about the time uh, line that uh, creation and then the end of time, I mean, he's as John points out, he was there. Nothing was uh, made without him. So here you have these prophecies, which are not only hundreds of years. I mean, how many years will will convince you? Thousands of years written to the exact detail and they're about the Lord and again think about uh, living in these in this time when you have these writings I mean as we said I mean Jesus broke down these scriptures he broke them down into the law he broke it down into the prophets and when he said these things it's not because a tiny group over here had these materials and they were in some cave somewhere. These were writings that were circulated. That was the job of the scribes is to record these. As I think Bruce pointed out on Monday night that these were hand recorded. So when we see these things and when we see that this is shown over and over and over again, that with such great detail, then we can see that, Future prophecy and the fulfillment of that is just one of the clinchers that prove to us that the Bible could not have been written by men. So I appreciate your time tonight.